Hey everybody, this is Matt Wolf, your lead pastor, and I'm in Moab, Utah right now on vacation. This is the hometown of my wife, Melissa. And this week you're in for a special treat. For the last few months I've been working with two guys to learn how to study and then communicate God's Word. And so if you're here this Sunday, what you're going to hear in the first service is from Matthew Dion, and in the second service from Kinton Chan, two members of our church who have been really working hard to study God's Word and to communicate it to you. So, hope you're ready. Thanks to Matt Wolf for that introduction. Uh, my name is Kenton Chan. I know many of you by, by face, um, unfortunately fewer by name, um, but if you don't know me, um, I appreciate the opportunity to be up here in front of you all this morning. Um, I wanted to start, um, because this is really the first time many of you have heard from me, I'm normally back here in the corner, um, I wanted to start by sharing a little bit about my story so you get to know a little bit about who I am, and it helps to inform, um, inform my message as well. Um, growing up, I was, uh, I was uh, you know, grown, born and raised here in Colorado, and I was a pretty good kid, I thought, anyways. Uh, a few years ago, there was the, the book that came out, The Tiger Mom. I don't know if you remember it, but it was about this um, Asian mom who was amazingly hard on her kids. And it was because she wanted to help them grow up into the people she wanted them to be, um, that she knew they could be. Um, well, I didn't have that. I didn't need that. I was a tiger self, I guess, um, because I was always really, really hard on myself. Uh, I got straight A's um, all the way through high school and most of college. Um, I remember one time, uh, the, the only time that I ever got a non-A grade was in the fifth grade, and it was in handwriting. Um, I was not happy about it, and I went home, and I made my mom go to school the next day and force my teacher to give me extra credit opportunities so that I could raise that handwriting grade. Um, I ended up getting an A, uh, but my handwriting is still terrible. And then, I, I, don't know, I don't know why, I just had that drive. I think because I had an older sister who I looked up to. Uh, so she set a great example for me. And I had a younger brother who I knew was looking up to me. So I always kind of pushed myself to be the best I could possibly be. So I really wanted to be a good kid. And I was constantly told that I was a good kid. Uh, when I got into college, uh, you know, not a whole lot changed, um, except that I had a lot more freedom. I remained a good student. Um, I ended up with, with two degrees from the University of Colorado. And uh, still, you know, people would have said I was a good kid. But with that increased freedom, I did um, party and, and drink some. I mean, it was college who, who didn't do that. Um, but I, I would have said I was a good kid. After college, I got a dream job. A week after I graduated, I was offered a position as a designer for the Orlando Sentinel, which is a metropolitan newspaper in Florida about the size of the Denver Post. And no, journalist, no journalism student expects that right out of college. So I moved down to Florida, and I had a great job. Um, I was living the dream. I had bought a condo. Um, you know, things were going really good for me. But something was missing. Um, I don't know what it was. I had grown up in the church, um, a Lutheran church. But I don't think that I really knew who Jesus was until uh, much later in life. 
Um, but I did know that that sin was a bad thing. I was I was told, hey, don't 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 sin, don't do these things, and and you should be just fine. Um, so I think I got to a point where I just realized that there was something missing in my life. There was something that I was doing that made me not a good kid. Um, and I came to a breaking point when I was in Orlando on my own and um, finally came to uh, a church. And I stopped in and um, <clears throat> got to know Christ a little bit more at that point. But the thing was, growing up, never thought I was missing anything. I was a good kid. And isn't that how we kind of compare ourselves? We look around at other people around us and we say, hey, I'm better than that person. I'm probably doing better than him. I'm not doing better than him, so I'm not going to compare myself to that person. Right? You compare yourself versus people who you think are worse off than you. But that's not how God sees us. God is not comparing us versus everyone else. God is comparing us with who we are compared with who he created us to be. So I'd like to turn today to Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is what we're going to look at today. Um, this letter was written to um, a group of believers who had come to know Jesus Christ already. So if you're here today and, and you've already accepted Jesus Christ, this is your story. I want you to see that in the verses today. Um, even though this may not be new to you, this is your story. I want you to remember where you've come from and where you are today. So let's look at verse um, chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let's stop there. Because I know this is my first time up here, first time getting to know most of you. And I'm already telling you that you're dead. It's a pretty tough message, right? So let's unpack that a little bit. So Paul is saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Well, clearly he's not talking about physical death. He's writing to a group of believers, a church that exists. So he's talking about spiritual death. And when we think about sins... I had grown up with this concept that sins are things that you don't do. You don't curse. You don't drink. You don't go out partying. Luckily, my church wasn't one of the ones that said you don't listen to rock music. But that's a thing out there, too. But sin is not a list of things that you don't do. The biblical picture of sin is, is the idea of missing the mark. Um, and that begs the question, well, what is the mark? Well, first, I want you to kind of imagine a sharpshooter or an archer aiming at a target. And no matter what she's, she does, she just can't quite hit the center of that target. That's the picture of sin in the Bible. Well, what is the mark then? Well, in Romans 3.23, we're told that the mark is the glory of God. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus himself clarifies that a little bit. What, I mean, what does the glory of God mean? I mean, that's probably a church term that you probably wouldn't throw out if you were talking with your friends. But Jesus, 
in no unclear terms, tells us in Matthew, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So that is what the mark is. That is the picture of sin. And who among us can say that we are perfect? And that's what Paul means when he says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he continues, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So following the course of the world, what does that look like? It actually kind of reminded me of um, one time when I was about five, maybe six years old. Uh, My family and I were visiting Washington, D.C. And we were taking the subway. I can't remember where we were going, but we're taking the subway train and if you've ever been to our nation's capital, you can imagine huge crowd, prob- dozens, probably hundreds of people trying to get on the train. And here I am, a five or six-year-old boy, and I was supposed to be holding my sister's hand. I didn't want to do that. That was not what I was going to do. So I shook free of her grasp, and as the subway approached, the crowd anxiously scooted up to the edge of the platform, I was going to be the first one on that train. No matter what anyone else told me, I was going to follow that crowd, but I was going to lead that crowd onto that train. So that subway pulled up, the doors opened, and I squeezed between, the, between everyone's legs, and I got on that train first. I did it. I found a seat, which is not easy. Those subway cars are crowded. And the train took off with everyone from the platform on the train except the three people that mattered most. My mom, my sister, and my brother had not made it on that train because that wasn't the right train. So I had followed the crowd. I had followed the course of the world, and yet I looked around and found myself lost and alone amidst a sea of people. Luckily for me, there was a woman who Um, knew the subway system really well and was able to get me back to the original platform. I think she even had the conductor radio ahead to let my family know that I was okay. But that's what Paul means when he says following the course of the world. We can do all the right things that this world says we should be doing. We can follow the world and look and be a good kid, be a good son, and yet end up lost and alone even though we may not necessarily be alone. But even what we do is not necessarily sin. Because Paul says here, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you think. Because there's something inside of me, there's something in each of us, that separates ourselves from the glory of God, from the perfection that we were created to carry out. And so by nature, we are children of wrath. We are dead, as Paul puts it. 
So if we're all dead, it's kind of like the dead comparing themselves to the dead. And some may be a little bit more dressed up than others. Some may have gotten to put on their nice funeral clothing and have family nearby, but not everyone gets that. But they're all dead at the end of the day. Malcolm Muggridge put it really well when he said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. What he's saying here is that we can look around at the world and there is undeniable proof that there is something missing in all of us. And yet, when it comes to our own self-realization, we miss the boat. We fail to realize that we're dead. So that's, um, so that's Paul. That's not me being a downer. But luckily for us, Paul didn't stop there. He continues in verse 4. But God, don't miss the power of those two small words, but God. This lifts the entire passage and should lift your souls because, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Think about that. God loved us while we were still dead, while we were still separated from us, from him. He loved us enough to make a way for us to come to him. He made a way, and that way was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us in Matthew that the forgiveness of sins comes by the shedding of his blood. Well, if Jesus just simply shed his blood for us and died and our sins were forgiven. That would have been pretty amazing. But how would we have known that Jesus was who he said he was? That Jesus was telling the truth? Well, Paul tells us right here. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the grave, proving that Jesus was telling the truth, proving that he has power over death and over sin. And those who have faith in Jesus Christ will be raised together with him. So if we're forgiven by the shedding of Jesus' blood, and we have the proof through the resurrection of Christ, then we can come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. But why do you think God chose faith? It says right here, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith seems like a weird weird way for someone to come to God. Why couldn't he have just chosen something that we could all do and just know for sure, hey, I'm going to go to heaven? Well, Paul tells us right there that the reason he chose faith was because faith leaves no room for boasting. If there were one single thing you could do to earn your way to that heavenly banquet, 
then you've become God yourself. You would have earned your way into heaven. You would have made it on your own. But faith leaves no room for boasting. Could you imagine being in that heavenly banquet, sitting next to all the saints, St. Paul, Peter, Augustine, Martin Luther, Billy Graham, and boasting about the things you did to earn that seat? What would you say? That you did enough good to earn that seat? That I served at the rescue mission enough to, to earn that place in heaven? Or I adopted three kids from, from poverty? That I was a good father? That I was a good son? No, that would, not, that, that would sound ridiculous. But faith leaves no room for boasting. So, you see, faith depends on the object of faith, not the one who has faith. I grew up swimming a lot when I was a kid, and now that I'm an adult, I've had the pleasure of trying to teach some people to swim in the past. And can you imagine trying to teach someone to swim, uh, maybe an adult? Um, are you gonna, and you sit that person down and you teach him all about the physical laws of buoyancy and displacement, show him videos of all sorts of people swimming. And yet, if that person refuses to get in the pool, even if he can recite the laws of buoyancy backwards and forwards and understands intellectually everything that you're saying, but does not have faith, is that person going to learn how to swim? And yet, if you're trying to teach a child to swim, do you teach the child about buoyancy? No. You ask the child to have faith, to just trust that if you jump in the pool, that you will learn how to swim and that you will not sink. Because faith depends on the object, in this case, the buoyancy, not the one who has faith. It doesn't matter that the child knows nothing of buoyancy. So that is why God, being rich in mercy, rich in love, by grace, made faith the way that we could be saved. So why did, why did God choose to save us anyways? I mean, he was in perfect relationship with himself, with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus Christ for all eternity before us. Why would he choose to save us? Well, Paul goes on and Verse 10, to tell us why he saved us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when you put your faith in the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, you are made alive. You are raised from death to life as God's masterpiece. You are his David. You are his Mona Lisa. But you weren't just raised to life because God thought you were awesome and wanted to party with you for all eternity. God created you so that you could do the good works which he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. And imagine that. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, there is not even room for boasting in the good works that we do in his name. Because we're not even the ones doing them. God did them. God prepared them beforehand. And we're just there to carry them out. 
So when you think about your standing before an infinitely loving, infinitely merciful, infinitely holy, holy, an infinitely just God, can you really say that anything you've done in your lifetime will be good enough? I know I can't. And I felt that weight when I was in Orlando. There was no major event that came upon me, but I went to that church and I took communion like I had dozens, if not hundreds of times before. But I hadn't been in a church for quite some time. Um, But something happened. I felt the weight of that shame and guilt of all the things that I had done. There wasn't one particular sin that stood out to me, but I realized that I was in need of forgiveness because I hadn't been perfect. I had been a good son, but I hadn't been perfect. And if perfection, if the glory of God is the mark, then who among us can say that we have attained that mark? If you stand before a judge, guilty as charged, you, you did that thing that you're accused of doing, and you, and you say to the judge, Your Honor, I'm guilty. I, I did that. I stole that thing, I, whatever it was. But, but I'm a good person. I did all these other good things. I'm a great father. I'm a great son. I gave a lot of money to the church. I gave a lot of money to those organizations I cared about. Can you please let me off? No, that's not how it works. You're still guilty because your one transgression makes you guilty as charged. And if you are guilty as charged before an infinitely holy and infinitely just God, how can we all stand without the strength of Jesus Christ? So there will come a day when each of us are going to feel the the weight of the shame and guilt of the things that we've done. Maybe those things were in our control. Maybe they weren't. Maybe there were things we got to rectify. Maybe there are things that we wish could be undone but never will be. But we're all going to feel, feel that, that shame, that guilt at some point in our lives. Maybe like me, it'll come at a time of solitude unexpectedly. Maybe it'll come when a spouse or a friend continually tells you you're not good enough and you start to believe them. Or maybe it comes from a parent who continually tells you that you are good enough that you are perfect, you are a perfect little snowflake. And yet you realize that just is not a standard that anyone can live up to. Or maybe it comes from hitting rock bottom, from an addiction, drugs or alcohol or uncontrollable anger, greed, always looking for what you don't have. And we're all going to feel helpless in those moments. But what I want you to remember today is that by God's grace, the spiritually dead receive true life only in Jesus Christ. 
We all receive true life if we simply believe. So maybe you're here, and I don't know why you're here. Maybe you got dragged here by a loved one. You stopped in because you saw our sign on the street this morning. Thought you'd check out what the hangar is. And to you, Christianity might just be another religion, just another set of rules to follow. Let me assure you that that is not Christianity. The message of the gospel is grace, that by grace you have been saved through faith. Religion tells you that maybe there's something you can do to earn your way into someone's favor. Religion tells you that maybe if you meditate long enough, hard enough, you become peaceful enough, that someone will find favor with you. That if you become your best self, that if you just forget about all of it and just do you, that eventually we'll all, we'll all be fine. That is not Christianity. Because we can't make it to that mountaintop on our own. But God. Don't forget those two little words. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, didn't wait for us to come up to the mountaintop. He came down. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to raise us up there with him. And he gives us the power. He gives us the ability to reach that mountaintop simply through faith. So if you've never put your, your trust You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. I urge you. I am begging you. Don't wait another moment. We are not promised another moment on this earth to find Christ. But he is pleading with you right now because he is full of grace. Through faith, you can be made alive in Jesus Christ. And if you have already put your trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to you, remember that you were saved by grace through faith, not because of anything that you've done, but because of God's character. So if by grace you have been saved, you were not saved by good works, but you were saved for good works. So don't just feel compassion for the lost. Don't just feel compassion for the the poor and the widows. Don't just feel compassion for your neighbors. But have compassion. Do the good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you so much for your words today to remind us that there is nothing we can do to earn our way into your favor, but because of your grace, because of your mercy and your love, you made a way for us to come to you. By faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, we are all raised from the deadness of our sins and made alive Lord, you didn't need us, and yet you wanted us. You came down from that mountaintop to seek us. You were on a rescue mission, 
to find us, Father, and bring us to you. And Father, when we are rescued, we thank you that you give us the strength to rescue others, to bring others into your kingdom by spreading your love and your word and giving them your son, Jesus Christ. You loved us first, Father, and we thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.